Socrates talk to talk about uh, as a urogyne, uh, somebody with special interest in urogyne on impact on, of birth on the pelvic floor. So <coughs> what I would like to talk about is um, pretty really quickly about the prevalence of pelvic floor disorders after birth, about the biomechanics behind it, like the current understanding about what's, what's going on uh, with prolapse after uh, somebody's given birth or stress incontinence, and then also something about the future, wh what is going to happen in the future, how should we manage these patients in the future. Carrie might come by as well to show us how she learned to do uh, forceps delivery with minimal impact on the pelvic floor. I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to it, <laughs> like you guys are. Um, pelvic, uh, birth in, in, uh, in humans actually has always been complicated ever since we started walking up straight a few million years ago. Pelvis uh, is actually not uh, really um, um, adjusted to, to give birth especially now since our heads become much bigger, a few hundred thousands of years ago, it makes those two things make that um, birth in humans as compared to other animals is often uh, associated with complications and mostly needs to be assisted. Um, now, if we look at the prevalence of pelvic floor disorders, um, it must be quite huge, but because, um, and especially after birth, it's a dormant uh, uh, lesion, so it only, you only see it after a few years, maybe even after a few decades, we don't really know. All we know is that um, more than 300,000 people in the US are yearly operated for uh, pelvic floor disorders, stress incontinence, prolapse, that's about as much uh, people that the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco can hold. 200,000 for prolapse, uh, no, sorry, 100,000 for prolapse, 220,000 for stress incontinence, more than 10,000 for fecal disorders. It is probably huge, but it's probably a bit hidden as well. We don't really know what, uh, what the true prevalence is. But there's a few interesting studies if you look at birth and pelvic floor disorders. We know that when women give birth... Oh, I thought <laughs> you just wake up. No, 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 I was going to okay. say that too. <laughs> <laughs> when women give birth... We say that in 20% of those women, they have a, a, um, a trauma of their pelvic floor muscles. We do know that. We know that half of women that are operated for uh, prolapse and a quarter of women that are operated for stress incontinence do have some kind of trauma on their pelvic floor mus musculature. We do know that the mode of delivery plays a role. Surprise, surprise, if you have a vaginal delivery, you have more risks for stress incontinence and more risk for um, um, prolapse. Uh, which is maybe a bit surprising because you do have the same amount of pressure on the pelvic floor, but it's so really the birth mechanism that makes that you have these, these issues. Parity, same thing. If you have uh, the more children you have, the more risk you have for uh, pelvic floor disorders, which would make uh, sense actually from a biomechanical point of view. Let's look at biomechanics. Well, you don't need to be a doctor or be involved in, in, uh, in birthing to realize that this is going to be hard no matter what happens, right? I mean, and actually, if you look at the biomechanics, um, vaginal birth is impossible. From a, from a physics point of view, it's impossible because you need to pass a 34-centimeter object through a 2.7-centimeter hiatus. So actually, from a biomechanical point of view, it's not possible. There must be other things that are in play. 
that brings us to the basis of um, the whole thing like what what creates um, prolapse or what is actually the mechanism that supports the vagina up into the pelvis and to cut it down you basically have structures that hold the vagina up that kind of pull it up into the pelvis and with that I mean your uterosacral ligaments and your um, cardinal ligaments uterosacral ligaments if the woman lies down they're actually hor actually horizontal it's actually originally horizontal ligaments and then all right you got the the middle portion as well like that the cardinal ligament also spreads out um, in the middle but you also have this squeezing mechanism of the pelvic floor muscles that make that the vagina actually becomes um, a virtual space right so that the pressure that's in the abdomen is the same as the pressure inside of the vagina and that that actually holds everything up now if you have trauma if you have an, an issue and that hiatus becomes wider then the pressure inside of the vagina is not the same as the pressure inside of the abdomen and so you get actually get a dragging force down so the vagina comes down if the vagina is underneath those muscles then basically you even got less pressure on that vagina you got more pressure from the abdomen and the pressure differential gets even bigger and then you get more and more prolapse that's a, like the, the current understanding but that still doesn't explain why the hiatus is there so what causes the hiatus after birth is it a nerve injury that's been postulated is a nerve injury because remember the nerve actually lies on top of the pelvic floor so it probably gets uh, quite a lot of stress during during birth um, is it um, pressure is it the continuous pressure of the head on the muscle that makes it the muscle becomes eudematous becomes non-functional or is it true trauma of the muscle itself is it really a, a an injury to the muscle if you go to biomechanics and you go and develop a finite element analysis what does it mean it means that we break down those muscles in those little strips and then we push virtually we push an object through it we can actually calculate what the stretch ratio is and that means to what amount does this muscle needs to stretch to allow this uh, uh, object to pass through it and then you see that all these muscles go to more than one so they stretch out more than their original length but it's mainly the muscles that are here that are at the vaginal outlet puborectal muscle pubovisceral muscle the one that lies around the vagina basically that stretch up to three times its size that's pretty amazing imagine your biceps being stretched out more than three times to allow something to happen I mean it's actually unbelievable that not every woman has has trauma but it 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 happen, it happens if we break it down even a bit more we find that the most stress on these outlet muscles is medially anteriorly when the head is in the the middle of the vagina and posteriorly when the head is nearly coming out so in the beginning of your of the birth it's really around those attachments near the pubic bone and at the end of birth it's near the near the um, the perineum and that's why that that explains as well why I think if you use a forceps and you just pull on it, you probably put extra force. It's accentuated by force. Put extra force uh, uh, anteriorly in the beginning, and extra force posteriorly at the end, and then you get trauma. All right. But is that really true? Because you can uh, develop those finite element analysis models, and that has been a bit the critique of these these models. You can kind of, and that's what you find out if you read up about them, you can kind of put in what you want because you need to uh, 
um, virtually say how strong a muscle is, how long a muscle is, what the force is and so forth. So you can, can kind of manipulate it a bit yourself. But if you look in reality, I'm sorry, I'm a bit of a, a cold. If you look in reality and you look at MRI pictures of a woman before birth and after birth with pelvic floor disorders, you often find that you have this trauma of the muscle. So here is the levator muscle being attached to the pubic bone. And here you see that that attachment is completely gone. So it's definitely a, a trauma. It is a bit sad. Um, so it's, it's very likely to be trauma. If you would have, um, if you would have nerve injury, you probably would get atrophy. You probably would have this being atrophied after a long time. And that's not the case. We don't see that. If it would be eudema, um, if it would be um, um, uh, continuous compression, you probably would find right after birth eudema over the whole uh, uh, pelvic floor muscle wall, and you don't have that. Only near the these uh, um, uh, outlet muscles. So that means that they've that only they have been traumatized. So it's very likely that it's really muscle injury instead of anything else. And that's quite important because it means that the second stage of labor, is if it's not nerve injury, if it's not compression, then you basically want to slow down that second stage rather than to, to make it go faster because that's only going to traumatize it more. So, so that does give us a bit of a, uh, of a direction of how to, to uh, uh, avoid these, these traumas. Of course. So I thought, oh. <laughs> um, I thought it was, we talk about prolonged second stage being a risk factor for trauma to the yes. So, which way does it go? So, prolonged second stage is probably more a predictor of the fact that when you're at the end of your second stage, it's going to be really tough, rather than the second stage itself being prolonged. So the fact that it's going really slowly means that you have a you have a bit of a cephalopelvic disproportion. So that means that at the end of your second stage, at the birthing process, it's going to be really traumatic. Right. So it's not actually that the kid's been sitting there for two hours and it's causing trauma. No. But now we're talking about long-term trauma. We're talking about pelvic floor disorders years after. It probably doesn't play a role. It would play a role in urinary retention, pain afterwards, uh, people having, having trouble walking and so forth, the girdle pain, well, the, the, the pelvic pain, that probably does play a role, and that's probably those nerves that are being attacked and those muscles that are a bit eudematous, but not on the long term. So if we look at those uh, prolapsed women uh, after 20 years, we do find more uh, um, complete breakdown of the muscle rather than atrophy. Yeah. Yeah. And so those women with seizures, they don't have as much prolapse, even though they also went into labor, a lot of them. Yeah. So that's actually coming to my point. How can we prevent these things? Well, if you have a small woman with a small pelvis and a big head and you have a prolonged second stage, then you know your birth process is probably going to be very difficult. And there we would say from a urogyne point of view, rather not then uh, uh, push on and really try to do that delivery vaginally. Um, it would also make sense that you would, with this model, that you would rather put your hand on the head and slow down the delivery rather than to try to be as quick as possible. 
not so that the patient push actively really at the end at the outlet there um, and if you have uh, trauma it would also make sense that you would uh, repair it diligently that you really uh, do everything like it should that goes more about what well, now I'm talking more about Oasis and about the, the sphincter to repair the sphincter and so on. Unfortunately, there's no way that we found out until now to repair the pelvic floor muscles themselves. And that's probably because at that outlet, those muscles, they're not really, they don't really have an epineurosis. They don't really have a ligament. They're, they're actually really plastered directly onto the pubic bone, which makes it very difficult for them to be repaired, unfortunately. Um, and then follow up. If you have somebody that had a traumatic delivery that has significant pain or you see that there's already a bit of prolapse, see them back in your clinic a few months after because you know that they might be at risk of, 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 of having issues with pain, with prolapse, with incontinence later on in their life. So rather sooner than later, give them physiotherapy and so forth. If, yes? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I'm not sure actually. Um, you wouldn't want to put in a um, shielded pessary or a support pessary, I guess, because you probably have still quite a lot of uh, lot of discharge, a lot of lochia. Um, I would say no, just at a first glance, but I, I'm not sure if there's any guidelines there. It's a, it's a good question. I think. Uh, if they can, by, by more lying down or by pushing it up themselves, I think that would be to be preferred and then actually putting a, putting a pessary there right away. Yeah. Just three months down the line and wanting to get back to normal life. All right. Well, then, yeah. Exactly. Well, then I think pessary, then, then three things, physio, 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 yeah. and probably your pessary. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Maybe a, a, a light pessary, like you have these little balloon kind of pessaries, something that, that is a bit, a bit lighter than for somebody else, because in, in, in theory, they should be able to exercise the pelvic floor muscles better than, than women that don't have them or that have that detachment uh, uh, since, since years. Yeah. The sweet future, so where we would say like, okay, wh what can we really do? Because ideally, you would have somebody coming into your practice that's saying, doctor, am I gonna have uh, uh, an issue with my pelvic floor and you can feed in some elements and you would have uh, uh, the capacity of saying to this woman, listen, you got 50% chance of having prolapse if you deliver vaginally, just don't do it. And that's what they're looking at. Ideally, we would have an injury prediction model taking into account all the elements. And we kind of have one of those things already that, that's interesting maybe to note, that's called a your choice, you are choice uh, model. Uh, and it's a guy from New Zealand, guy from Dunedin that developed it, but it is based on epidemiologic studies, um, and it is uh, it has not been validated. But it's kind of looking at how many people have stress incontinence after their first birth, and then feeding that into a model, and then you can tell your patient what they can expect based on observational studies. But ideally, you would have really the the patient individually, so not only taking into account her musculature but also other things that, um, that play a role in um, developing pelvic floor muscle disorders. The angle of the pubic bone probably plays a huge role. The wider the angle, the less force you must put on those muscles, and so the less likely they are to rupture. 
molding is also a very big aspect that we're looking at now. It's not that 34 centimeters that goes through. Molding plays a very important role. You can decrease the diameter with five to six centimeters. That's very significant. You have 27, 28 centimeters instead of 34 centimeters. It's quite amazing actually that um, we adapted that way um, uh, by molding the head. And then, not very sexy, but very important probably, the viscoelasticity of, uh, of the tissue. Um, what do I mean with viscoelasticity? It's actually a way to describe how a material reacts, how a muscle reacts when you put a force on it. Viscous talks about the viscosity of a material. So uh, like water, for example, if you put a force on it, it just changes uh, form completely without breaking. It just it, like if you pour water into a glass, it just takes the shape of the, uh, of the glass. And elasticity talks about uh, the spring-like character of a structure. If you put a force on it, it just uh, goes out, but then it comes back to its original length. And something that is viscoelastic, think about uh, cellotape, for example. You can pull on it and it deforms, but at the same time, if you let go of the force, it kind of goes back a little bit towards its original state. Um, and the thing is that it's also speed-dependent. If you pull on it very quickly, it will break. If you pull on it slowly, it actually gives you much more leeway. And although it's difficult to, to, to explain, actually, instinctively, we kind of do that ourselves. We kind of slow down the head because we, we want the viscoelastic properties of the pelvis to play their role. And we want to slow down so the force impact is not as, is not as much. And I'm trying to, set up, trying to set up a clinical study for that, where we're going to look at the... the uh, the speed of delivery, and then look if the tra if there's more trauma, if the, the 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 speed has been uncontrolled, and I think that will be the case, and that would give us an extra element in saying, listen, you need to really control the head uh, uh, when the head comes out. Yeah. Always look at a partner with a small head. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh, well, oh, yeah, but amazingly, only up to 10% of, of uh, us doctors gives information about prolapse and incontinence after birth. Yeah, it's not really something that we talk about. It is definitely more because these numbers are talking about 20 years after. Yeah. It is quite significant, I would say. But I mean, if, if you look at it, relative numbers, stress incontinence from 28 to 40, uh, prolapse from 6.3 to 14, it's not enormous. It's not enormous. So you probably have these... Um, remember, you still have your compensations mechanism. You, you can develop your muscles a bit better. You can, um, you also still have those ligaments pulling on the vagina. So aside from your muscle being broken down and it doesn't break in everybody, you do have this, this compensations mechanism that play a role as well. And that's why, 
And that's why ideally we would fish out the patients that would be very vulnerable yeah. beforehand yeah. and help them. Because it's true that it would not make sense now to offer everybody Caesar to avoid these numbers. I think you'll have to do one uh, or 12 Caesars to, to have one woman that you, you that, that wouldn't have a prolapse. I mean, that, that's not, uh, economically it's not good. Yeah. So no evidence there, no evidence there that it, that it works. Yeah, and I don't think there's any data to support it. Um, some people might even say on the contrary, because if you, in women with strong pelvic floor muscles, like athletes and, and, and ballerinas and so forth, we sometimes do find that that resistance is even bigger. And that would make sense from this model that if you have strong muscles that are quite rigid, that don't have the same viscoelasticity, you might even have more trauma. Um, you have these balloons that you can pump up to kind of yeah, make the difference, yeah. But probably the, the key will probably lie in the future in trying to change viscoelasticity. And we actually already do that in giving prostaglandins to the cervix, right? We change the viscoelasticity of the cervix to, to try and uh, uh, promote birth. So maybe we might find a product to, to kind of promote relaxation of the pelvic floor muscles. That might be a good thing. Maybe injecting Botox a few days before they give birth, that might be taking a bit too. Or the block. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Relax it. I would do think that women with epidural, that there is a bit more relaxation of the pelvic floor muscle. Yeah. Kerry, can I call you to the stage to show your uh, technique? Uh, do you want to carry on? Or? Yeah.